Okay, so uh, uh, welcome to episode 58 of the Ski Podcast, uh, kindly sponsored by Switzerland uh, Tourism. And we are in early September, and uh, I'd like to start off by uh, welcoming uh, my guest today, uh, Mike Richards. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm very well, thanks. Uh, first question I always uh, like to ask people <clears throat> is, uh, when did you last go skiing and, and where was that? Um, well, it was a, a bit of a challenge, to be fair, because I'd been in Hokkaido for my usual winter season, and I came right. home on uh, the end of February, February the 27th, intending then to go ski um, between 7 to 14 days in Europe, looking at the weather. Uh, it was a really good end of the season, it looked to be, and I was going to go with my partner, Neris. And then, obviously, the world started changing very, very dramatically. Um, and we were looking at various countries. Italy was our preferred option. And then you could see that problems were, were arising and there may be the chance of being stuck uh, overseas. We looked at France, Switzerland, the usual suspects, Austria. Uh, Eastern Europe seemed to be less affected. So we were looking at Bulgaria, Romania. So a lot of, there were a lot of great last-minute deals with a lot of the tour companies because mm -hmm. they wanted to just get people out there, I guess, you know, to, before everything went um, into shutdown. Um Georgia, where I'd been previously, or where we'd been previously, and yes. we talked about it on the previous episode, um, that was looking really good. The snow conditions are great. Um, access was easy. But it came to a point then where the British government was starting to suggest that they were going to impose a, um, a self-imposed quarantine for 14 days where you couldn't go out, you couldn't do anything. Um, and it was too difficult to manage for my partner's work. So we decided to go to Scotland. And um, very, very glad we did. I'd, I'd threatened to go up there for years. Um, I had gone once, oh goodness, back in the late 90s um, to the Lecht, but got blown off the mountain. I mean, the lifts weren't, didn't even open. Driven up through the night to get there for first lifts and the snow was great, but, you know, we got, uh, we, we had no chance. So I dry, drove straight back home. Um, and then... Uh, so we went up and we had a couple of days in the Lake District on, on the way up, which was great. The, the weather was really, um, really good. And then we based ourselves uh, about an hour west of Fort William in the anticipation that if the ski resorts closed, at least we'd be close to places like and sorry, was this was this in February, did you say? No, this was in March. You know, this was in right March. at the death. Um, yep. we, went, we left the house on, I think it was the 16th of March, yep. uh, the week before the lockdown began in um, in the UK. Uh, a couple of days in the Lake District, stayed about an hour west of Fort William. So if the ski resort did close, then at least we were in, you know, close to Sky and, and the West Coast nature and what have you. But uh, we first day we went to Nevis Range and um, got stopped. Too windy, glorious sunshine, <laughs> new snow overnight. It'd been raining low down and he knew there was good, you know, when we got there, the the whole mountain was just white, white. Uh, so then we heard, you know, on the on the the um, the war drums that Glencoe was open. So we drove another forty five minutes then across to Glencoe. As soon as we got to the car park, they closed for the day. So it was one of those like, okay, it's going to be one of those kind of holidays. Uh, we went back to our digs after seeing a little bit of the area, which was good. And then the next morning, then we drove to Glencoe and we had a fantastic day. Um, there were maybe. You know, 100, 200 people there. 
because um, I think a lot of people were sort of saying, well, I'm not going to try this again just in case we get nixed again. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hit the, you could see all the views that you're looking for. We did, I didn't go off the back because it's yeah. uh, on my own. Glen, um, Glencoe is one of the places that uh, I've I've cycled uh, through it, Rannock Moor, because that, that, I'm right, that's in the right area, yeah? That's, it, yeah, yeah, that's and, the lowland area, and then there's the yeah. then too. Okay, and it's there. glorious uh, uh, there, absolutely. And it, it almost sounds to me like um, what you had is what some people give as a stereotypical Scottish experience, a bit of mix of fantastic conditions and a mix of dodgy unpredictable weather and and high winds at the same time indeed and, and you know that first day was great um where we had to take the chair up um and then neris who's not as uh been skiing as long as i have she downloaded then and most people were downloading but i managed to to ski back to about 100 meters or so from the car park there were patches where you could get down and i was yeah, kind of, great <laughs> with my welsh skiing experience it was uh it was yeah. great no, compared to we, way we do have a previous episode of the uh ski podcast i'll stick a, a link in the show notes where we we interviewed um someone who skied every month of the year in scotland for mm, helen marshall i think is it there you go you know better than me helen marshall yeah. you know there's those patches of snow and i could see you hopping your way down to get to the car park there i like that yeah and then the the second day then um a little bit of rain overnight but you know it cleared pretty quickly another fantastic uh, sunny day and we went to nevis range this time right um took the gondola up which was uh, great. Same again, you couldn't uh, d- uh, ski all the way down. And I, 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 I'm I, led to believe you can't do that often anyway. So you were kind of going over where they've built their um, downhill mountain biking track. Then you got to the the top of the gondola station and then everything was great to go from there. Uh, skied around for a, a good few hours and then I went and took the top T-bar and hiked a little bit and then yeah. and skied the back quarries and they were as good as they get I, i'm led to believe i mean the snow was fantastic it was about uh, boot top uh, powder sunshine wow great. Really great conditions and um and there were lots of people just jumping off the corners and it was it cool. was a great it was a great and, hour and i know mike that you're very good at putting together videos and photos of things i'm guessing online somewhere you've probably got some photos from that trip i did you? i mean it was it was it was really it's one of those things where um, um, possibly we'll touch upon it later with, with the Norway experience. Um, when you see those great photographs of New Zealand where you've got mm. yeah, some form of water, whether it's a lake or the or the sea, if you're lucky to yeah. see the sea, and then you've got that bright, bright green patchwork of fields where people are doing agriculture or you know uh, houses and things, and then you've got the white top mountains and that contrast between the three, and we had that in spades. So the lochs were just that beautiful blue yeah. color that sky was well, blue. What, what would be great would be if you could uh, maybe send me a couple I'll stick those in the show notes and and share a couple on the uh, on the Facebook page as well so I mean that that is great and I think possibly you know it, I'm certainly keen to do something about Scotland in more detail uh, in the future and who knows it might be like worst case scenario it might be the only skiing that um British people you know, we'll be getting without uh, quarantine, but that's a long way off. We'll, we'll come on to that. It might be useful at this point because I know some of our listeners will have uh, will be familiar with your voice from um, the episode we did about Georgia, which is very interesting. And uh, we also uh, discussed skiing in Japan, which you're a bit of a, an expert on uh, as well. But it might be useful. Uh, maybe, Mike, if you could 
give people a little bit of background as to you know what what you do why are you skiing uh, you know all around the world and spending time in japan Certainly. Well, I'm very fortunate that uh, the skiing is my profession. Now I'm a ski instructor um, and I work on the island of Hokkaido. I'm based primarily in uh, Nisiko, which is if people go to Hokkaido, that's kind of normal entry point for them. Uh, it's about two hours south of Sapporo, the main city there. Um, but I've been there now since uh, 2006, seven was my first winter going to Hokkaido. And over that time, then I've expanded uh, my, my customer base has remained pretty steady. Uh, lots of Australian families and um, groups of Australian dads who have come over for a, for a boys trip kind of thing. Yeah. And then I've expanded my area of expertise where um, there are a number of resorts you can go for within an hour's travel each day. Um, and other groups then have wanted to go and do a few road trips where we've explored more of what what's to offer on the island, big and small. I mean, Nisiko and Ferrano, are the two big areas on on Hokkaido where they've been quite extensive skiing and they're quite well developed. Lots then of smaller one, two, three lift hills where you have to drive. There's no on mountain accommodation, but when you've got a van and you can, you base yourself in a city, so it's it's a really good combination. It's you know when I speak with fr European friends of mine, it's almost a little bit like the Innsbruck experience where you can be based in the city. You have yeah. all wonderful bars, restaurants, um, theater, music, you know, and the normal things you'd get in a, in a, in a very good city. And then very quickly, you either get the cable car straight from the city itself, or within a short drive, you've got the opportunity to have great sport. Um, and you don't feel then as if you're isolated, you know, just in a ski resort. So it's a nice combination. Italy offers it as well. You know, you can be based in places like Milan, Verona, and very quickly you can get out into the mountains. So it, uh, Hokkaido offers that, which is great. Yeah. And as well as um, obviously, uh, you know, spending your winter in Japan, then you uh, that season is is relatively short. I'm thinking that's what gives you the opportunity to to explore everywhere else. Is it? The season is long. I mean, uh, for Hokkaido itself, um, it's very far north. So the the the, the opening of the winters normally is um, corresponds with what the Americans call Thanksgiving. It's a national holiday in Japan which is that last Thursday or Friday in November. And then the resorts like Ferrano and, um, and Nisigo will go through to what's uh, uh, Golden Week, which is the first week in May, which for low altitude, where the bases are around about three or 400 meters, and they're non-glaciated, there's almost a six month winter because there's so much snow falls, you know, 13, 14 meters of snow will fall at the base of the village through the winter so it's it's remarkable in that sense but the by that time it's only um locals are really skiing uh, the main holiday period would be a week or so before maybe actually it's a little bit earlier maybe the 10th of december is when sort of um, the singaporeans and the taiwanese get their sort of uh, national holidays and they start coming in then then you get the regular christmas and new year then you get the Chinese New Year crowd. A few come over for um, February half term and Easter if they're based in international schools in places like Hong Kong, um, China, um, Taiwan, that sort of area, uh, Singapore. But um, I my winter is fairly short because my customer base is primarily Australians, uh, right. Australian families who've come over. Uh, some have bought properties there and they spend a significant amount of the time because that corresponds with their school summer holidays so they've okay. got a, a big holiday break 
Well, it, 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 listener, I can direct you if you'd like to hear um, more about some of uh, Mike's adventures. I think it was episode 37 where we discussed Georgia. Uh, Montenegro uh, we covered uh, in, in 39 and a longer discussion about skiing in Japan, uh, I think uh, maybe 41 or, or after that. Now, I'd just like to pivot slightly because I mentioned Switzerland Tourism. Very kindly, they they sponsor the podcast, and I'm delighted to announce that they're going to sponsor us again through this winter, um, which is great because it, it takes up so much time doing this podcast. It's a, it's great that it actually uh, you know can cover some of the time as well. Now, I tweeted out a little while ago. I found it quite interesting that um, Switzerland are uh, asking at the moment. I guess they must be doing some kind of, you know, content uh, uh, thing, but they're looking for memories from people of skiing in Switzerland or trips to Switzerland, you know, when you were younger. And actually saying, what's it like visiting a resort after 20 or more years? Uh, There's a place in Switzerland you used to visit, uh, go skiing as a child, a place that has special meaning to you and your family. And um, I'm going to put a link in the uh, in the show notes but you can email your memories to media.uk at switzerland.com and you know i was thinking about this and you know for me um i'm not sure i actually went to switzerland as a child because you know like um we mainly went to kind of italy uh um a bit of austria when i was a kid um but i did i'm actually that that old that um you know, over 20 years ago, I was doing a season in Zermatt in 1993. And I love going back to Zermatt as a just a kind of, you know, everywhere I walk around that resort, I, uh, you know, prompts uh, memories, um, whether it's walking past the uh, the North Wall Bar or, or the uh, the Broken Bar. Have you been out to Zermatt, Mike? Uh, only in the summertime. I had one day on the glacier, which was fantastic. Yeah. And a very similar experience, as I sort yeah. of mentioned there about Scotland, where you've got green in the valley and, and snow up yeah. high. Well, I was lucky enough to ski in Zermatt, um, you know, earlier this summer, um, which we covered in a, in a previous uh, podcast. Um, but one thing I really thought when I went out there this summer, the big difference between being out there when I was there in 93, that season was... 92, 93, whereas I was a rep for Bladen Lines at the time. And, uh, you know, there's no cars in Zermatt. So my resort vehicle was a, a bike, like a mountain bike. And, I, you know, part of my job was to kind of go from chalet to chalet and check the guests were okay, et cetera. And if you know the, the, uh, the, the, the um, geography, the, the, the physical layout of the resort, it's basically like a valley and then it goes up on both sides. You know, one side is the cheap side because you don't get views of the Matterhorn and the other side is the expensive side where you do. And, you know, I'd be cycling, trying to cycle up these uh, hills, you know, to get to the chalets, to go and sail out the guests, etc. And I got very fit while I was out there, but pretty hard on snow. And now everybody has an electric bike. You know, like there's no one on a normal bike uh, anymore. And with the, it would have been so much easier, you know, with an electric bike just uh, uh, whizzing around the place. I probably wouldn't have been as fit. But, um, you know, for me, one of my strongest memories is just like cycling around Zermatt. And in fact, I've got a picture somewhere. No idea if I can find that of a, like a ski instructor cycling along in his ski boots with his skis over his shoulder, you know, on the way to the meeting point. That's a, like a real classic kind of Zermatt um, image. Uh, and Mike, did you do you have any memories from Switzerland from you know back in the day at all? 
I didn't start until I was late. So 93 was my first year. And I think Bladen Lines was linked with Ingham's or Crystal? Uh, never linked with Crystal. There was a point where actually Ingham's bought Bladen Lines. Right. Um, a, I a, little, think I a little later than that, yeah. Yeah. So my my first um, winter was 93 also. I was right. working in Elmau in the uh, the ski veld area of Austria. Right. I uh, worked for Crystal as a, as a chalet rep. And that was the really my, I had had skied once before that. I went to a place called Trafoy in the, the South Tyrol, which um, is one of those funny areas where one village will be um, all speaking German. And then the next door, two miles down the road, they'll all be speaking Italian. You know, it's one of those. Oh, yeah. Ones where, yeah. You know, but I did go back. I had a, a similar memory where I went back, where I went on a bus from London uh, overnight kind of thing and had sort of seven days or six days skiing in Trafoy in 1986 that was my first exposure I went with my cousin uh he was a he could ski he'd skied as a kid I hadn't I was 20 uh 20 years of age then I think yeah and um so I was on the beginner slopes down in the village hating life because it was late season freezing cold at night boiling hot in the day skiing on sheet ice bruised hips bruised legs the whole shooting match and then finally, they allowed us um, up to the top of the mountain. And then you could see, oh, I understand what this is all about now. Right. Um, and then 30 years later, in 2016, I took a little trip um, into the Dolomites. And then on the way back to Innsbruck Airport, I, I went and called back into Trafoy uh, 30 years later just to see where it all started. And unlike your experience, nothing had changed. It was still <laughs> two lifts. It was... Uh, Still the same houses, you know, they'd obviously been tarted up a bit, but the big hotels, there was two or three hotels were still there. And I was very fortunate that the bed and breakfast I stayed at, the lady who was running that, Maria, her father was my ski instructor back in 1986. So wow. the family had kept, you know, lived in the valley, brought her children up and sort of was one of those continuity kind of stories. And it was fantastic, you know, to... You, you obviously as you get better you kind of appreciate things differently and i went there and it, it was two lifts ski toward above the second lift and next you know you've got 16 1700 meters and there were three of us skiing it all the way back down to the valley floor met up with a guide who was with one customer and we were kind of either side of a ridge so we weren't seeing each other and then we'd come halfway down we'd come back up onto the ridge to to get to a safe point to to see, you know, before you made the next sort of, and he just said, look, I'm going all the way. Do you want to come? And he parked this because I was ready to sort of ski tour back into the resort because I dropped below the lift. And uh, so we managed to ski all the way to the bottom of the valley and he had his van waiting and he gave me a lift back up because once I told him I was staying at the certain bed and breakfast, he was like, no problem, let's go, you know. So that's, that was a great that's, experience. That's right. That's, uh, uh, you know, I love those uh, sort of memories. And, and, you know, while, uh, you know, on the one hand, you kind of think, well, uh, uh, you'd expect change. It is brilliant that there are these places out in the outs where things haven't changed. And to be honest with you, a lot of Zermatt, you know, really is uh, very similar. A lot of it has been, you know, similar for, for many years. I think it's just that some of the chalets, for example, we used to have when we were blading lines, you know, you, there were loads of chalets in Zermatt and it was very much more accessible for, uh, you know, British guests. But a lot of those, you know, have been have been redeveloped. But, you know, the buildings there that have been around for hundreds of years and you still get the sheep uh, and the goats herded through the uh, high street once a week. And, you know, one of my I loved uh, there was a chalet called Chalet Tommy, a Bladen Lion chalet. I got injured for a while and I had to 
couldn't ski and I used to sit on the balcony, you know, looking at the Matterhorn and every day this uh, this guy would come and get his uh, goats out of uh, their mini barn and take them to the water trough and feed them and take them back. And yeah, you know, these guys, they might be goat herders, but they're all millionaires, you know, they got sure. massive Rolexes uh, uh, on their arms uh, and, you know, that sort of thing probably hasn't uh, changed that much. Um, but let's let's move on. I mentioned we're in early September at the time of recording. And uh, unfortunately, you know, you might refer to it before. We still have this issue of quarantine. You know, I was lucky enough to go out to Switzerland, uh, skied in Sassfe and Zermatt last month. I was due to go, um, you know, in a couple of weeks to Switzerland again to take part in a trail running race. But I just cannot do a quarantine for 14 uh, days. And this quarantine... Um, is killing the ski industry uh, for sure you know the random nature uh, of the way that it's applied and you know in my view the uh, the faux science that it's based on so listener all i'm going to say to you is you know we don't know what the situation is going to be for this winter and that uncertainty is is the problem you know i can tell you from looking at analytics uh, of all the clients i look after there's plenty of people looking into skiing holidays there aren't people booking at the moment and you know makes sense the uncertainty is there i would like to direct you towards um a campaign that's been started by the daily telegraph which you can um, find if you search test for travel and there's a hashtag test number four travel and what they're trying to do is they're trying to um get the government you know to move away from this idea of you know quarantining based on the number of uh, cases there are and actually allow people to get a test when they get back immediately and then have another test, um, I think it's three days later. And that would mean if you pass both of those, your quarantine would just be five days. And that is a much more realistic, that's less likely to deter people from booking a, a holiday, I would say. And in the circumstances, it's probably about the best option and if we can get the government to kind of sway away from this uh, you know random situation that we're in at the moment to something where people have some kind of certainty because the telegraph have also done a survey where they established that um uh, i think it was 40 percent of people would be happy to you know do a test and 55 percent of those would be happy to pay for it uh you know there's a lot of testing um, capacity, but let's not worry about that. What we want to do right now is, listener, I encourage you, um, send a tweet, uh, you know, post something on Facebook, share that test for travel uh, campaign, you know, write to your MP. And, you know, if we can just get the government to move direction, if they can come up with this sort of thing, then we can change the situation that we're in at the moment without them losing face, which is what politicians, you know, need um so that's all i'm going to say on quarantine now we're not going to discuss that any further but we're going to move on you mentioned austria mike a couple of stories that i saw which are kind of affected by coronavirus um at ski obviously you know ishkel got a really bad rap you know back in uh, the autumn quite justifiably because there was a super spreader in one of the bars there and a lot of people um, caught it and took it to lots of different countries. You know, that sort of thing would be prevented uh, now. But Meyerhofen and Ishkel have both announced basically that they're going to not have any apres ski this winter. 
Did you look at those two stories at all, Mike? I did, yes. And I mean, it's it's one of those things, where, as you say, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, there are a lot of recommendations based by national governments. And one of the big, the clear messages that are going worldwide are staying away from people, the social distancing aspect. Um, and the app rate doesn't lend itself to that. So it, it makes a, it makes sense that, you know, when we're seeing it in, in the UK uh, situation at the moment, where if you go to a bar or a restaurant, it's the track and trace where you, you sign in, you have to book certain time slots. Um, and then there's a lot of space between tables. If you're in that so-called bubble, if, if you're just two of you, then you'll have a table for two. If there's eight, you can have a table for eight. So I think... Um, it's very much a, a situation where uh, the the chalet holiday was kind of bring your own fun, that sort of message. I yeah. think the bar will be very similar where, you know, if you go on a holiday with three other families or three other couples or whatever the case may be, then you'll bring your own party to the venue and you won't have the dancing and those kinds of things and, you know, the shot glasses and the ski shots and, and the parties that, the UK tour operators tend to sort of roll into the whole ski experience, but I don't think they they'll still be apres ski. It'll be it'll just be a, a fairly um, relaxed version of it rather than the whole. Yeah. You know the you you mentioned uh, the tour operators before. I'm pretty sure I have to dig up this link, but I'm pretty sure that Inghams have said you know they're amongst their um their their apres activities that they offer to guests. It might be that they've dropped all of them, but they definitely, you know, one of the ones that was really popular when I was, you know, repping was the bar crawl. <laughs> you Absolutely. Know, that, that bar crawl is not going to be on the uh, uh, list of anyone's activities for this winter. And I, and I find it really interesting that, um, you know, Ishkul, who you know, obviously comes to a lot of people's minds straight away. I mean, they've got the article here, it's going to stick a link in, but the... Um, the mayor of the uh, region says, you know, there'll be no apres ski next season as we knew it, um, which, you know, fair enough, I, I suppose. And in Meyerhofen, this is more a kind of peace sort of thing, but they've said they're going to ski boots are going to be banned from eight o'clock in the evening onwards, <laughs> which, um, you know, if you've been to Austria and you've, you've sampled the apres ski over there, um, I don't know if it's a noise issue or it's just to try and stop people drinking nonstop from what four or five in the afternoon until eight, right? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a combination of things. It's one of those things where when you're on a roll, you're on a roll. But when you go back to your accommodation and get out of your ski kit, have a shower, then maybe they'll sort of say, ah, I can't be bothered going back out now. I'll stay in our stube or our bar, you know, in the, the hotel itself or in the chalet. Um, but the other thing as well, I'm sure there are far as many accidents of people falling down in ski boots late at night, walking around towns as there are on the slopes. And if there are any kind of spikes, local spikes of anything going on, then they want to obviously have the least amount of people occupying the hospital services right. and so okay. uh, that's, so that's they might be looking in in st anton uh, several years ago you probably know the setup in st anton as you come down you know on that final slope into town you've got the kk crazy kangaroo on one side and the musavert on the other side and lots of people stop there get very drunk <clears throat> and let's say they 
their their skiing ability isn't enhanced by alcohol uh, surprisingly enough or you get people sledding down from there even worse and you know flying into the tennis courts uh, which are at the bottom covered in snow and injuring themselves so you know St Anton have been trying to move away from you know that prey ski thing for a while but you know it will be a different winter that's that's for sure I, I agree with you Mike that I think that prey will continue but it will be different and certainly you know some resorts are really trying to position themselves away from that just uh, purely from a, a safety point of view and I think possibly places like the Folly Deuce, Lay Folly Deuce where it's more of that outdoors kind of feel I mean I suppose perhaps it's outdoors um, KK and, uh, and Moosever but it'd be interesting to see what their policy is for this winter anyway. And um, that's another, a big part of their, a big part of their um, USP in, in a sense, you know, their, their unique selling point is, you know, there are various bars, various restaurants, various resorts that offer very different, exp- you know, it's not just about the skiing, you know, you can go just for the skiing and perhaps that'll be a return to that this year. But, you know, for lots of people go on holiday for a full winter experience to see snow, to see the trees, to see the lights, maybe a firework display, the whole shooting match, you know, and that's part of their ski week. So, you know, it's, I think the, the mayor of Ishkel was, you know, nailed it on the head was it's the end of APRE as we know it, but I don't think it's the end of APRE. And, and the smart towns, the smart operators will find a different alternative. So, for example, um, you know, dinner cabarets used to be quite popular then all of a sudden you can have entertainment, but you're seated at your table, you can have a meal, and, and the smart operators will find a way where they can incorporate all the things that would have been on the cards for that holiday week and combine them in, in a way where it'll be safe, but the customers will have yeah. these, these multi... Uh, it's, certainly, it's certainly true that um, <clears throat> it's been a lot of innovation uh, I think the, I can't remember who said it, but the, the phrase necessity is a mother of uh, all invention. You know, there there is a lot of this uh, going on. Talking about invention, quite like this uh, link, uh, a story I saw that has nothing to do with um, uh, nothing to do with uh, coronavirus, which is which is nice, <laughs> is um, Amazon have. Uh, patented uh, a design uh, for a drone to drag skiers and snowboarders up a hill or you know effectively a uh, a rope uh, drone it have a re- retractable rope with a tow handle skiers would be able to use their um uh, their phone to kind of summon it in remote locations to pull them up the hill and um, this seems bizarre to me but I could see it kind of working. What, what do you think of this? Did you look at the design? I'd looked at it. I mean, it's, you know, I, I follow, I have all the newsletters that come in from the various sources that are ski related, you know, and then the, uh, the aggregate, all the news that comes in. Uh, it's a recipe for disaster myself. And I, and I, and I honestly <laughs> think it's, it's just Amazon creating PR for themselves. In the right. same way, a lot of UK tour operators will throw in, we're going to go to, you know, Azerbaijan this year, or we're going to, you know, we're going to go back to Argentina for the, they know they damn well, they're not going to go, but it creates column inches in the newspapers because there's a new story to be told uh, amongst the ski world as such. Um, When you, when you look at uh, friends of mine, I I take a lot of photographs and video, but it's all ground-based. 
a, lot, a couple of friends of mine have got the drone-based systems. Yeah. Um, they've been using it for a number of years. And the one big problem with, with the drones is the better they are, the less time they're in the air because they're heavier, they've got better equipment on them. Yeah. So for the battery to pull a human being uphill, it you know, if it if they did one run, they'd be lucky, I think. So in terms I of know, thinking life, about that, the amount of power that you'd need to kind of pull not just pull someone along, but to pull them up a hill as well, it yeah. would be um ridiculous. But there you go. I think possibly you could be right there cynically. Uh, <laughs> it's a PR exercise, but you know, it, not that Amazon need any help because I uh, no. read that um, their sales are up forty percent year on year thanks to uh, coronavirus. Uh, but we've given them a bit more publicity, so so Indeed. there you go. But I, I, it could be I patented like the idea. Well, you know, you know, yeah. they, they, they're first out of the gate, then they've kind yeah. of establishing a patent and all those kinds of things you know you, you don't know what goes on in the background uh now a couple of other news items um the we've mentioned before the world's largest ski show which is this virtual ski show uh that's due to take place they've actually just announced yesterday they're they're pushing the dates for that uh from october to early november um it's not a hundred percent clear to me exactly why but they have brought down the length of the show from four days to two days so you know i think with an innovation like this you know i think it's going to go ahead um you know it's new there's it makes sense that they're going to uh, you know be adjusting it trying to work out how it's all going to happen but i'm i'm hoping to be involved i've kind of had some discussions with my ski flight free hat on about doing some kind of sustainability webinar um you know within that so so more news you know about that when we have it i also noticed and you've probably seen this as well mike if um you're on all the newsletters there's been plans announced for a new real physical uh, ski show to take place at the Birmingham NEC in October 2021. So obviously not this October, but the one after, but they've announced that already. And in the light of the fact that the Telegraph show has been canceled, um, you know, very long running uh, Telegraph show, to me, that was really exciting news. You know, someone's getting out there in the market and they're going to, you know, put on a new show. And it, you know, I happen to know that the uh, the the organizer of that was the guy who was running the uh, the Telegraph show, who was who was made redundant, uh, and he set up his own company. Had a little chat with him, and you know they they're putting together um, this ski show for um, for three days. I do have the dates in my diary, but you know that far ahead, you don't need to get it in there yet. October twenty twenty one at Birmingham. Um, did you see the details of that, Mike? I did. I mean, it was kind of, you know, nothing concrete, but it, it's great news because I, I, firstly, I hope the, the virtual goes off. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rarity, I think, where I actually make my money in the ski industry, but I still pay to go to see the ski show. Um, mm-hmm. And I go up every year because I want to keep abreast of new destinations. For example, Georgia, um, I heard about that in the ski show, talked yep. to the people on the ground, and then I was able to get their business cards email them a couple of days out and say, you know, what are the conditions like? And you get a different, you know, a different uh, 
information then from those kind of people if you've met them face to face and you've already had a relationship with them and uh, you know best best ideas of where to go and those kinds of things so i hope it is i've i've paid for a number of uh, photo photography um and sort of like the banff mountain film festival virtual tours that have been going on during the lockdown um and i'm more than happy to pay whatever the, the cost was i think it was between 10 and 20 pounds they were looking at for the whole of the the virtual event i think that's a great idea um if you can't get 10 to 20 pounds worth of value out of something that's on for three days then you're not looking hard enough as far as i'm concerned a lot of people <laughs> balk at the idea it should be free it's on the internet and so it goes on I'm not of that. I subscribe to a lot of different things that are paid, and I subscribe to a lot of things that are free. Um, right. I'm contributing that's, you're to that. actually a, a really good uh, advert there for uh, a ski show. As you know, a lot of the time, you know, when the organizer talk about these things, they talk about people like yourself. I mean, I love the ski show because, you know, it's it's the industry. And I'm also really interested to walk around and see what's going on. But my kids love it as well. And they're really disappointed to discover, you know, that it, when they discovered it wasn't going to be going on this year because they, you know, they they love that event, you know, all the running around, uh, et cetera. But, you know, we'll have more news on that Birmingham ski show uh, and, you know, the, the world's largest ski show, the virtual ski show in due course, because they're both um, quite a few podcasts away yet. Um, there is an event, a physical event uh, coming up next month in October, which is uh, Listex. And Listex is, it, it, that is a trade uh, event. And uh, I actually interviewed um, the organiser of that, the founder of that, James Gambrell, uh, earlier this month. Delighted to welcome James Gambrell, who is the uh, founder, uh, I guess, of, uh, of Listex. And we've, we've covered Listex a few times before in the, uh, in the podcast. Uh, it's one of those um, important uh, parts of the uh, the ski trade. But I thought I'd hand over to you, James, because I'm sure you can explain much better than I can. You know what what Listex is to someone who's not come across it before. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Good good to be with you. Um, so Listex is a is a business to business trade show. So it's not open to the public. It's purely there for different organisations in the snowsports industry. Um, to come together for meetings, for networking, and for what we call the forum, which is where we have presenters from um, both within the industry uh, and beyond who are presenting on, you know, various topics that are kind of timely and important for the industry um, at the moment. So um, we have about 200 attendees and at a typical event, we started back in 2012. So we're now in our eighth year, which is quite unbelievable. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, traditionally we run one in May and we run run at the end of September. And so our September event is the, you know, is the kickstart to the season in a normal year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember those early events because actually I ran past Thames Rowing Club uh, the other day when I was staying in London and they right. used to be held there and you kind of outgrew that venue, didn't you? And uh, now or more over the last few years have been held up at the uh, the Snow Centre in Hemel Hempstead. Uh, but this event, uh, you know, this year to be able to put it on, I'm guessing it will be run slightly differently. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I guess the first thing we had to work out this year was when we would run it. We obviously didn't run our, our events in um, in May that we normally would. Um, we really wanted to run a um, we really wanted to run a live event this autumn. We think it's, you know, it's so important this year more than ever for the industry to, to get together if they can. And um, normally we would run at the end of September. 
Uh, obviously, the UK government announced a few weeks ago now that business events could recommence from the 1st of October. So that's when we decided to move it back um, to this year, to the 6th and 7th of October. And we are still, I think, like many businesses, sort of working our way through the government guidance as to what we can what we can do, how we can operate safely. Um, we're, we're very lucky to be working with the Snow Centre. Um, we've had the event there, as you said, since 2015. So we've run lots of events there. Um, they're a really good team. They've obviously reopened um, since the beginning of August. So they've been running now um, as a public venue. And so I think they've, you know, they've had to they've had to quickly get to grips with how to make the venue safe. So I think, you know, the advantage compared to, say, running it in a conference centre or a kind of business event centre is we're running it in a venue where they deal with the public every day. So safety is absolutely paramount for them. Um, but we are having to make changes for sure. Uh, I guess the first thing is that we're having to limit numbers. Um, so we have to maintain social distancing as part of the event. And, you know, as you well know, having attended a networking event is all about, you know, getting, getting close and personal to people for those conversations. So it's a slightly kind of, you know, an antithesis of a networking event is social distancing. But we think we can make it work. So the main differences this year will be we'll be capping numbers at 100 people. And we're normally near at 200. Within our forum theatre where we do the presentations, we will have a maximum of 50 seats. So the seats will be socially distanced. And normally, as you know, the most popular sessions, the seats are all taken and we have people sort of standing at the back to listen. Unfortunately, this year, again, once 50 people are in the theatre, we will we will close it off. Um, with the meetings that we normally have, we would normally have somewhere between 10 and 12 tables um, in our meeting rooms. And that's where the buyers, the tour operators would be sat to have those one-to-one -one meetings with the suppliers. So this year, we're only having five buyer tables in each room so again lots of distance everyone two meters apart um it's it's challenging and um, but we think we can make it work with that we are going to run everything in sort of two groups so effectively you're either being in a morning or afternoon group and then you will have half a day of meetings and then the groups will swap and you will go into the forum theater for the other session so we'll sort of have two distinct bubbles i guess if you like um it, it will work so everybody can meet everybody that they want to and um, the one thing we can't really operate this year is the sort of, you know, just just the, the, the networking, the informal networking that happens over kind of coffee breaks and lunchtimes. And, um, you know, we will still have that set up, but we will obviously be asking people to um, to socially distance. You know, I think you can still have a good conversation two metres away from somebody. So I think with less people that will still work, but it will no doubt feel a bit different. Um, and sadly, we can't have our normal evening party with live music and a buffet. So we will have mm -hmm. a sit down meal again, you know, socially distanced, probably some background music. Um, you know, it will be a different uh, a different feel. But I think the important thing is it will still be an opportunity for everybody who wants to to get together, to see people's faces yeah. on a computer screen and still get those conversations flowing. So yeah, we, I mean, yeah. I... I'm I'm fully uh, behind you on that, and I think it's great that you have uh, put this event on because we all know anyone who who's ex survived through lockdown knows that uh, while uh, you know you can get a, a certain degree of uh, you know contact and communication out of Zoom, etc., you really need to see people face to face. And just we're seeing um, you know shifts in in working arrangements you know across the country. And I was talking to someone the other day saying they're worried about the younger people coming into you know jobs and into industries who don't have that network uh, behind them already and don't have the opportunity to kind of have those water cooler conversations etc and this is you know th this does present that as well as the formal uh, side of things uh, as well 
But, you know, just talking about the the, the Zoom side of things, I think uh, one thing I found interesting about Listex and, and Motex, which is a sort of like a holding company above all of this, is the, yep. the, the increased output that, you know, you've created or you've put on during the course of uh, of lockdown because there were there were lots and lots of different uh, online forums that, that you curated uh, you, was that just a natural response to what was going on yeah it it was i mean interesting enough you know when we founded listex it was just after the sort of 2009 financial crisis um so listex was actually founded sort of as a almost as a response to that crisis um and the need that we saw for the industry to kind of come together and rebuild obviously you know that hit us with a, with a kind of 20 percent drop in the uk market that's probably the the toughest time that we've faced as an industry in the last couple of decades so i guess um you know to some extent we, we're sort of used to that um you know that crisis spawning a new way of working um so we've been working on something called the mountain trade network actually for the last 18 months and the mountain trade network is effectively taking all the elements of listex online um and this was you know this was pre-covid this was really uh, as a as a response to the number of people who were contacting us and saying, oh, we'd love to come to Listex, we'd love to attend, but we can't really travel, we can't really take the time out. Um, you know, the cost of not so much the event, but the cost of, you know, flights and hotels and everything is just too much, but we'd love to attend in some way. Um, because, you know, our audience is global. Anyone who has a business in the mountains is, is, a, is you know, is somebody who can benefit from our events. So the idea of the Mountain Trade Network was to create an online membership-based site where anybody could join and where we would run um, some virtual events. Obviously, uh, once COVID hit in March, we sort of, you know, significantly accelerated the development of that, shall we say. You know, it had been, it had been in planning for 18 months, but we thought we need to get this thing up and running. So we got it live in April. Um, and as you say, we launched Motex, which is the Mountain Online Trade Exchange. So it was really an online version of Listex, same ideas. We, um, we took our forums online via Zoom. Uh, the, the Mountain Trade Network platform has the capacity to run pre-scheduled video call meetings within the platform. So exactly the same way as we do for our live events, we could run an event over a certain amount of time and anybody who was registered to attend could pre-schedule a meeting and then just rather than walking into a room and meeting face-to-face, they met in a in a private Zoom room. So, um, you know, like so many businesses, we had to adapt to that. Um, and then, as you say, you know, I think things were happening so fast and everything was changing so quickly that we sort of put on our first Motex event, um, I think back in mid-April. Uh, and by May, we felt actually things have changed already. We need to kind of, you know, regroup and, and go back to the industry. Um, as you know, we run a lot of market research. So normally once a year, we do a big market research project. Um, this year, we've done a new market research pretty much every month, and we've seen bigger shifts in consumer behavior month to month than we would normally see over two or three years, which I think just shows what, you know, uh, as a cliche, but what unprecedented times we're in. So, yeah, it felt that it was really important to try and keep the industry um, up to speed as much as we can what, with, with what we felt was happening, certainly with the consumer perspective. And, you know, just so much to talk about, right? Just so many different mm-hmm. impacts. So many different ways that were happening. What was the summer going to look like? How was the winter going to happen? How were consumers going to behave? Uh, you know, just so many questions to answer and um, that, you know, we, we've never run out of content. And, and I guess, you know, the last couple of years we've done a lot on Brexit and suddenly it felt like we've got, you know, 10 times as many things to talk about. OK, so that was interesting uh, uh, from from James there. I will be at Listex and um, so I'll, I'll give a bit of report after that. I'll probably be in a couple of episodes time. But uh, Mike, you know, we've already had you on before talking about, you know, your experiences of skiing all over the world. 
we actually had a question from one of our listeners, Mike Smith, and he asked um, you know, why there's no coverage of skiing in Norway. Um, he refers to a lot of the, you know, the really good skiers who come from Norway. And to be quite frank, you know, the reason there's been no coverage is that neither myself nor Jim uh, uh, had ever been there. Um, but there's no reason not to cover it. And we can rely on uh, on on our Mike with us today, who's been basically, you know, as far as I can see, skiing everywhere it's possible to ski in the world. So I wondered if you could, um, you know, what you give us your uh, rough guide to to skiing in Norway, uh, Mike. What are your experiences of uh, of the country? Very very positive. Um, I've gone independent. Uh, been to two resorts, Stranda, which is in that sort of central region uh, on the western edge um, in the Fjordland sort of area, and Norvik, which is the northernmost uh, ski resort in Norway uh, on the border of uh, Switzerland, uh, sorry, Switzerland, on the border of Sweden mm-hmm. near uh, Rikskransen, which is a, yeah. a very much a late season ski area because it's right up there close to the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Uh, a number of t- tour operators um, have tried to break the Norwegian market and the Swedish market um, and failed. A number of tour operators from the UK have been very, very successful if they know their, the type of customer they're looking for. So, you know, not to harp back, but to harp back to look forward in a sense of there's not a big apres ski kind of culture. It's very much family oriented. It's, you know, they're still drinking out there obviously, but it's not like the, the, the central European experience. So in light of that, possibly places like Norway and Sweden might be the tickets for the coming uh, the coming uh, season and beyond. Uh, magnificent scenery. Um, you know, we touched on a little bit when we were talking about Scotland where there, there's something very special and the mountains look more dramatic where if a slope drops down and gradually hits the lower ground, there's a curvature to it. Whereas if a slope drops into water... It's a straight line and it's it's very stark and things look steeper than they are. And to have that view where you're standing on top of a mountain, and I was fortunate in both Stranda, which is in the fjord, where you're looking down the fjord, and then Narvik, where you're looking out to sea because it's a, a, a port town. Watching those mountains drop down into the water, may, you know, if, if it's a still day, you're getting the reflections of the mountains in the water source itself. It just gives, even though the mountains are not big in comparison, you know, height-wise, yeah. uh, they, a lot of them top out under fifteen hundred meters in height. But they've got very the two resorts I went to, Stranda's got an eight hundred meter vertical, um, which can be added to with a little bit of a hike, and you can ski below the resort if the conditions are good, right back into town. So you right. can even get over a thousand meters. And then Norvik is practically on sea level. The base is 100 meters. Um, the top lifts go to 1,000, but you can hike to 1,270. So you can get over 1,000 meters of vertical, um, both pisted and off-piste. And um, there's something special to be standing on top of something, looking down the full expanse, whereas there are a lot of benches in Europe where you can't often see the village. Yeah. You can see the halfway point, so you don't get that enormity. And, and when you were talking about Zermatt, you know, in, in Zermatt itself, you can't really see the top of the mountain unless you're in certain locations. You don't really feel... You feel that's, like all, you're, that's all true. You know. For sure. And, and what about... I think um, you mentioned about there's not such an apres-ski culture. I believe that one of the reasons for that is that alcohol costs 
quite a lot, uh, you know, when you're there. What about in general, like, you know, lift ticket and accommodation and stuff like that? Is that, is that um, you know, how it, does that come out? It's very comparable. I mean, uh, one of the big things that the Norwegian, in my experience, in the Norwegian hotels do is that they either do bed and breakfast or they do a half board option and you eat at your hotel. But they have these big smorgasbord is you know there's, there's the word they use up there which are these huge buffets for breakfast um and you and they have sandwich bags and brown paper bags where you're expected to make your lunch from what's available at the breakfast <laughs> right okay as opposed to when you're in europe and you have to kind of sneak it sneak into your uh, bag to take with you for the day <laughs> exactly so you know when you look, it's the same. It's the, it's the Ryanair versus the the British Airways, for example, sticker price. Mm. Very, very different, but you end up kind of paying the same amount of money for the same experience of traveling from A to B. Um, and Norway tends to be high sticker price, but you get a lot of value for that sticker price. So you get, you know, the food is fantastic and it's plentiful. And you, as I said, you expected almost to, if you want to, make your pack lunch from the breakfast buffet. And then when you're on the mountain, it's pretty much then hot drinks and maybe a hot cake or a dessert and you've got your food. It's all set up for those kinds of things. Yeah. Alcohol is expensive, but, you know, no more expensive than going to places like Kosheval or, you know, the, the, the when you go yeah. to some of the bars in the crazy expensive places compared with, yeah. you know, the smaller European resorts in Italy and uh and Austria, obviously, it's a lot more expensive, but not that you abstain for the week. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, I think Narvik was the one that you said was, you know, way in the north near to um, Riskens. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Are the days significantly shorter up there then in terms of daylight? They are, but no, no different from, you know, when you're in certain places in Europe, I mean, the sun is out, but you haven't got the sunshine because you're in the, in the, the shade of the big mountains and what have you. Right. Yeah. Uh, it certainly gets darker, but um, for Norway, it's, it, you wouldn't really want to go. I mean, lots of people go to Finland yeah, uh, skiing for that sort of Christmas, New Year experience because they've tailored the whole holiday experience to northern lights father christmas that sort of thing so skiing is a part of a broader winter experience uh, lots of the norwegian norwegian resorts don't even open until february time because of that darkness kind of thing right uh, the bigger ones that are closer to uh, oslo will be open year round and a lot of floodlit skiing which is yeah. similar to um, places in japan and some places in europe will have floodlit skiing close to uh, urban centers because they know then they can get two types of customer and it's darker earlier in the winter but once you start to get to mid-february the the days become start to get much much longer already and it's, it's yeah. a very quick so easter skiing in uh, which is the, both times i've been i've gone uh, for in march and then in april i went to Narvik because it was a late easter that year uh you can't beat it you know it's beautiful conditions you still get snow um falling from the sky to top things up but then you've got really steady weather patterns, long, long days, and and it's just a it's a great experience. So early season, yeah, it can be a little bit cold and a little bit uh, dark, you know, where you'd get a shorter season, much like Iceland has, you know. But then yeah. once you get to that past February half term and onwards, it's fantastic. 
Yeah. So, and and you said, you know, you think it's a, a great option for, for families. So you'd be going like a, on an Easter trip rather than a half-term trip if it was a family? Uh, it could do both. I mean, it's, it's it's a short flight, you know, and lots of the resorts, you know, certainly the tour operators, they've kind of concentrated on Yalo, which is G-I-L-O, yeah. and, and Hemsedal. Those are the two big resorts in Norway that they yeah. kind of they push. They're very, very close uh, transfers, you know, under two-hour transfers. Um, and everything is kind of ski-in, ski-out, or cabin-based or hotel-based. So it's it's very convenient in that sense. Um, and because that's what the Norwegians like. They, they like to be on the slope in their sort of family-based uh, cabin. Yeah. Um, and it, it's very much set up for families. But that's not to say, you know, where the two places I went, Stranda, has got some of the best and Marvik have got some of the best off piece you'll you'll ever ski because it's not a lot of people doing it really yeah. good snow conditions um and you know a different kind of experience from skiing some of the the routes yeah. and items and, and for Yalo and Hemsedal and Stranda as well you'd be flying into um Oslo would you yeah either um, a lot of them I think go via Bergen as well Right um, on the west coast there. Um, I went when I went to Stranda. I flew to Oslo and then a place called Olesund, uh, which is um, a pretty little village in the Fjordland area. And then you take a bus and a ferry. You know, it's a, a little bit more convoluted, but yeah, it's worth it. Uh, Narvik was um, fly to Oslo and then Oslo to Harstad, and that was forty five minutes from that airport to yeah. Not in Norvik as a town, so they, you know, not dissimilar to the the transfer times for to go to an Austrian, Swiss, or French holiday. Yeah, but sorry for Narvik, you took a connecting flight within Norway as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. that was, you know, that pretty easy to easy. pretty pretty inexpensive to book. Yep, yeah. I mean it's a uh, Sasko uh, Norwegian Air. People like KLM. Um, we have these sort of, you know, for, for me personally, because I'm based in Wales, I'll use the Cardiff hub and yep. then go to Amsterdam and then Amsterdam will take you to yep. the various uh, other uh, European destinations. So I'm always kind of used to having two flights. Right. <laughs> better for me because the check-in process at Cardiff for our baggage and all that kind of stuff and get into the airport is a lot easier and quicker overall yeah. in the overall journey than go to London, for example. I mean, I think that's a really, that in itself is a really interesting insight because, you know, one of the things I've become, you know, much more, much more aware of probably with, with ski flight free. Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, there's no way you're going to be getting the train or driving to Norway. You're definitely going to be flying there, but you know, taking the train doesn't work in certain parts of the country. And, you know, you're giving, you're saying to me, well, if you're in Wales, obviously how it works through Cardiff is really important. And I think with, I have a feeling that with, uh, in Norway, there's probably, you know, quite a lot of regional options, let's say going via, um, Amsterdam that you're, uh, uh talking about, uh, there, um, so, yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned as well, um, you know, the buffet side of things. There has, I've, you know, there's been a, a theory, quite reasonable, that the buffet, you know, days of the buffet are over um, because of, uh, you know, coronavirus. Having said that, you know, when I was in Switzerland, um, there was a buffet in my hotel in Sasfe, and the way they did it was, uh, you know, everyone was provided with these plastic gloves that you just slot on in the morning and then you'd, you'd serve yourself like that. Mm -hmm. Now, 
you know, as far as I was concerned, I didn't have a, you know, problem with that. It seemed uh, like it made sense. So, um, therefore, your packed lunches would still be on the cards in, uh, in, in Norway as well. Well, you know, that was really interesting. And hopefully that answers the other Mike, Mike Smith's uh, question. Um, and I really appreciate that, uh, Mike. There are going to be other, I'm sure we'll have you back in the, in the future, definitely to talk about Scotland uh, as well. But we've already covered, you know, Georgia, Japan, uh, so many places you've been to. Uh, and Mike, thanks for that question. Uh, he also said, I'm very much enjoying the podcast. Uh, keep at it. So thanks very much uh, for that, Mike. We had a couple of other reviews, which is very kind. One from uh, someone called Lubzi, which is a five-star one on iTunes. Uh, it's fun and informative. Um, the hosts keep it light while obviously knowing what they're talking about, which is uh, not always true. Uh, and it helps me to understand the infrastructure and background of the resorts and where to travel. So, you know, hopefully, um, you know, we've covered a lot of stuff in this uh, episode, which I think will be useful. And then uh, we had another five star one uh, from Bramski Vlogs, which is very kind of you. Uh, they mentioned the audio quality is not perfect. You know, doing our best, oh, <laughs> that proves it. Uh, but we have a wealth of uh, knowledge and experience and it shows during the show. Uh, topics uh, are far ranging, fascinating guests. <laughs> That'll be you, Mike. Uh, we love our skiing and that's why it's worth a listen. So, um, you know, appreciate that, uh, Bramski. And it's he also, uh, he or she also says, uh, thanks for keeping me sane. Uh, during lockdown and love to jump in on the next Q&A. Well, we will have another Q&A and we will do some more uh, live uh, podcasts in due course as well. Um, but we're actually going to bring an end to this episode, episode 58 uh, of the podcast. The next one will be in a couple of weeks time. Um, I mentioned before that I'm going to be doing some you know, special you know, sustainability um podcasts uh, with my ski flight free uh, head on and i'm going to be recording a live one about train travel next week uh with uh, daniel elkin from snow carbon uh who's going to be participating uh, in that one and also anna hughes from uh, flight free 2020 and we're going to be looking in detail about how you travel uh, how you can travel out uh, to the Alps by train, not to Norway, <laughs> but to uh, everywhere else, um, you know, quarantine notwithstanding. Uh, we're also going to be uh, hopefully uh, looking at, uh, in episode 59, uh, kind of new technology. Andrew Brennan asked a question about that. He had a brilliant um, uh, a clipping that he sent me from a ski magazine from 1988. And if all goes well, I'm hoping to uh, track down the author of that article uh, and I'm hoping to interview him about. He wrote an article predicting what the new technology innovations would be in skiing in 1988. So we can uh, we can um, you know look at those again. So, um, Mike, I'd like to thank you very much for your time today. My absolute pleasure. Great to be back and uh, and look forward to sharing other stories down the line. Cool. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring uh, the ski podcast. And uh, don't forget that if you have got um, you know memories of uh, Switzerland from when you were younger, you can send them through to them. If you have a look in the show notes or uh, on our Facebook page, which is at Ski Podcast, or on our Twitter account, which is at the Ski Podcast, uh, then you can uh, find out more about that and send it through to them. 
reviews are always welcome. They help other people find us. So you can review us on iTunes or you can go along to those social channels. You know, if you've got any questions uh, like Mike Smith's question, then fire them in. You know, we definitely uh, want to answer your question, listener, whatever they might be. And uh, you can follow me personally uh, at Skipedia on uh, Twitter and Facebook. But uh, for now, that's it. Thank you very much for uh, for listening. And uh, you know, we'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks' time. Hi there, listener. Ian here. I just wanted to let you know that you can now support the Ski Podcast at BuyMeACoffee.com. Researching. Recording, editing and publishing the pod takes up a lot of my time. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoy it. You know, I love talking with people about skiing. But if you do enjoy listening to the podcast and you'd like to support us, then you can literally buy me a coffee, or in my case it would be a cup of tea, but the idea is the same. So just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.